Teoscar Hernandez. He doesn't look like he wants to leave the big league club. I got into a long sort of Twitter argument with somebody, which, you know, don't do it. It's about career health. But first, we have to comment the fact that he's writing down unwritten rules, which means they're no longer unwritten. And welcome to Artificial Turf Wars, episode number 98, where we recap the least popular sport in Toronto this week. I am your host, Greg Wisniewski, and I am joined by Joshua Housem. Josh, how you uh, how you feeling? I was going to ask you how <laughs> you're going. Better than speaking. But how you, how you going doesn't really say anything, does it? Uh, maybe, depending on... No, it just doesn't. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, <laughs> I tried no to help you out doubt. there. Um, the team that we uh, we love, the Blue Jays, they struggled in Yankee Stadium as expected. So we're going to talk about maybe some of the highlights because they did uh, get to play one game against Boston back at home uh, before we recorded this. Uh, Curtis Granderson, a man playing like he's 27, not 37. Maybe we're pipe dreaming a little bit. Uh, tonight, when just before we recorded, Aaron Sanchez stepped up on the mound and his velocity was better which is really important than uh, the last couple times we've seen him out. J-Hab continues to strike people out inexplicably. Uh, Lourdes Gurriel Jr. was the call-up that we were speculating to replace Gift and Gope. Uh, him and Teoscar Hernandez have been doing things, good things. Troy Tulowitzki is going to get back on a baseball field. We're going to talk to Eno Saris about strikeouts and power and how those two things might be related uh, to launch angle and a bunch of other stuff. We have your questions. We have... Greg Olson went and wrote down the unwritten rules. That seems like that violated some sort of code or something, but we're going to talk about <laughs> some of those. And uh, Rob Manfred came into Toronto just to crap all over the Rogers Center facilities. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, the team is 2-3 and three as we speak, but uh, they are trailing Boston by a run here late. Not that that's been a problem for the Blue Jays, per se. Uh, so not not the greatest week. I mean, the Blue Jays went into Yankee Stadium against a Yankee, uh, Yankee team that we have often believed was superior in many, many ways to the Blue Jays roster, and they came out with one win and three losses. Is, is that really a shock to anybody? I don't think it should be. I mean, the Yankee team, despite their record, which is mediocre, really, they're good, and they can hit. And that Yankee Stadium really plays up to teams that can hit the ball in the air, which is pretty much what the entire Yankees roster does. And we saw a bunch of that. There were a lot of really cheap home runs in that series. Um, not that it really changed the games that much. And the Jays had their chances to split in the second game of that series, or was it the first one? I can't even remember. Yeah, they left a whole bunch of runners on base late with less than two outs. I think it was Pilar and Grichuk struck out in the eighth inning of the one game with the runner on third and nobody out and then one out. So they had their chances to win and just didn't. And that, that's going to happen, especially at that park. Yeah. Um, you're, you're looking at, uh, you know, a, a team where Didi Gregorius is playing actually over his head. Um, and, and Sanchez and Stanton and, and Judge are all, you know, all three of them being cold at the same time is probably not going to happen very often. So you've, you've still got to navigate that. So, no big surprises there. It would have been nice to come out with a split because, like you said, there, there was a moment where it looked like that was distinctly possible. Yeah. And, you know, again, that's just how baseball goes sometimes. But just show that they can at least play with those guys, right? And that's kind of going to be the key. You know, you're going to lose games here and there in April. It's just going to happen. But they're right there in terms of talent. I mean, well, maybe not right there, but close enough that if they keep beating up on these bad teams as they've done, then they should have a shot. Absolutely. So let's talk about Curtis Granderson because, uh, you know, that Steve Pierce Granderson platoon, um, you know, we, they see a lot more right-handed hitters. So we see a lot more Curtis Granderson. He's batting leadoff. Has he swung at a first pitch yet? I don't think so. I feel like I didn't see the last game against Boston, the first game against Boston. So uh, he might have done it once, but I don't think he did. And it's working. Not uh, not causing him any, any troubles. What is no. his slash line now after a heroic homer uh, last night? So unless he pinch hits during this game, which he's not come up yet, he's hitting 321 
with a 424 on base and a 571 slugging. That's pretty good for a leadoff hitter. Yeah, yeah, it's it's beyond exactly what you would want out of a leadoff hitter. That that OBP is, you know, fantastic. And I think John Gibbons knows that uh, he's he's struck gold for the moment with the matchup. Uh, it's not like Steve Pierce has been horrible, but uh, Granderson, you know, people made that comparison to the 37 year old Jose Bautista and said. You know, oh, well, if you're just going to sign Granderson, why not sign Bautista? I feel like when Bautista gets up for the Braves, he's probably not going to hit quite like Granderson is hitting. <laughs> I think that's a safe bet. And it's funny, you mentioned Pierce. Pierce has been fantastic, too. His his slash line is 314, 375, 569. Again, you play to these guys' strengths, and you're able to, to confidently, you know, platoon them and pinch hit them and know that they're not abysmal against the you know the opposite split that's kind of how how you want a roster constructed which uh i will not skip ahead to the other guy who's in a platoon sort of uh let's talk about sanchez first uh he had a start <laughs> where uh, i don't know where his fastball went it was one of those where occasionally uh you were looking at the the automated pitch tracks seeing um change up and going, I don't think that's a changeup. I think that's a two-seamer that's fooling the algorithm that picks pitches. Yeah, if you looked at, I'm not sure if it was Brooks or Baseball Savant, I can't remember what it was, they had him throwing more changeups than fastballs in that game against the Yankees, and that's not what happened. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, spin shouldn't be the same between those two pitches. So, yeah, I don't know if they got, I haven't checked to see if they got reclassified manually after the game. Because that has happened in the past where a, a bucket of pitches is, has uh, been changed to what they really should be. Uh, but yeah, you, you can't be happy about Aaron Sanchez just not showing any, uh, any rebound in the velocity. And then he comes out tonight in the friendly confines of the indoor Rogers Center. And it looks like for the Red Sox, he was able to, to amp it back up again to around the 94, 95 mile an hour mark. Which is more where we'd expect to see him you know, in mid-season form, so to speak. Yeah, but the interesting thing about this is, while it seems like it was just weather-related, because, like I said, like he came back in the Rogers Center and he started throwing better. Uh, I was talking to Jamie Campbell about this earlier today on Twitter, and he said that uh, he spoke to Sanchez, I believe, and that he said he was working on something mechanically and he could reach back for the 97 if he needed to, and that we would likely see him do it tonight, which we obviously saw him throwing much harder tonight, and I think he hit 97 a couple times. But the question I have then, why is he doing this, right? Because we've seen him be extremely successful as the hard-throwing fastball pitcher. I mean, that's what he was when he led the American League in ERA in 2016. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously a reason for it, but, but I, I, we were lacking some information here. Yeah, I just I can't figure out what it is. I mean, I've heard some people are saying that they heard him say that he was looking for more movement, which he is getting more movement this year. He's getting about an extra inch of horizontal run and an extra inch of sink on on the sinker and the changeup. But the thing with him, and I, I mentioned this on Twitter, but I also I wrote that piece a while back about outlier fastballs, and he was in there because his combination of velocity and movement, there was only one qualified pitcher who had more. And two, if you included the unqualified Luis Castillo. But dropping his velocity down to the 93 range and throw and for getting that extra inch, he's just in a crowd of 10 or 12 pitchers. So he's no longer that outlier when he drops down that way. So hopefully today, again, we're recording this on Wednesday, is a sign that it's going to be higher going forward as the weather warms up. Yeah, and I am curious if it is an intentional move. Is it an intentional move because uh, he... You know, he's letting go of the ball differently in terms of the stress he's putting on his fingers. Uh, or does he feel like with more movement, um, he, you know, and, and, and slightly less effort, maybe he can get deeper into games, which is another thing that I know the Blue Jays have been emphasizing for reasons I'm not entirely sure about. Maybe because John Gibbons doesn't seem to think any reliever can throw two innings. Um, and I still don't understand that. I mean, that would make sense from a logical standpoint. But going into deep into games was not a problem for him two years ago. Yeah, I don't. I, is he the same pitcher he was two years ago? I guess is the real question at the bottom of all this, right? 
Well, and when that comes back to it, it's like, why wouldn't he at least try to be, right? Last year was a write-off. I mean, he threw barely at all. So if you assume that he's healthy, why would he not go out there and try to be the exact same guy he was? He's, his stuff shouldn't have changed. He didn't have an arm injury. It was just his finger. So I don't know. Maybe there are issues, like you said, with the blister and trying to pitch a certain way. So I, I don't think we're actually going to get an answer on that, though. No. Uh, all right. We got Jay Happ, who continues to whiff everybody unex- somewhat unexpectedly. Uh, is he just in the right spot with, with the high fast or the rising fastball to, you know, fool all of these these hitters who are looking for for a certain kind of pitch to drive? And, and he's, you know, is he in a magic spot? I, I mean, honestly, I think the answer to that question is yes. He's not throwing any harder or anything. His velocity is actually exactly the same almost. It's within 0.03 miles per hour. And, you know, that's there's a margin of error there that I think it's within. <laughs> and his movement profile is the same. His usage is, I mean, he's throwing a few more four-seamers. But you know, we've talked about this before with his fastballs, how he gets that big separation between the four-seam and the two-seam. And when he is on, he he's throwing that four-seamer up in the zone for strikeouts, and he seems to be really being able to successfully get it there in the early parts of the season. Last year, at the beginning of the season, he wasn't, and he was actually going for home runs because it was, instead of getting it up with the letters, he was throwing it at the belt. And, you know, he figured it out a bit towards the end of the season. So I think we're going to see some ups and downs from him on this matter, but I think it shows that he is still very much a very good pitcher as opposed to just the middling number three people thought he was even after his great season in 2016. Hmm. Uh, the Blue Jays did debut their rookie, I'll say, prospect. I don't think we can call him a phenom. Lord Scurriel Jr., uh, whose brother plays for the Astros. Uh, and that that went pretty well. I mean, he got a hit in his first at-bat, drove in some runs. So, uh, yeah, a good start for him. It's actually his second at-bat. But... Is it the second? <laughs> Yeah, I missed his first at bat. Yeah, he uh, hit a line drive to center field in his first at bat. I'm sad now. Yeah, well, so something we... really special. <laughs> <laughs> so we were talking about this on the last podcast where we were trying to figure out who was going to replace Gifton Gope because something had to change there. He was just an automatic out. Uh, I think I may have mentioned Urania, who's injured, so I don't know. <laughs> that wasn't <laughs> going to happen. And it wasn't going to be... Espinoza because there's no room on the 40 man roster and I don't think they want to just give away and go pay but yeah I mean they they reached down to double a and popped Gurriel who's barely played in the last two years so I was really surprised at that yeah it's uh it's interesting I I someone did quote out that uh, just back to gift and go pay for a second he struck out more frequently than Jared Saltonamakia last year yeah he did and he had the same number of hits one just wow um yeah you know from watching Gurriel in this early part of the season he's an interesting kind of player i think it's you know the profile of a future utility type i don't think there's necessarily a starter there but he makes good contacts he can play the play the infield he's not a star anywhere but he's not going to hurt you and he's got some drive in in the ball not a ton but i think that's pretty useful And and i was actually surprised to see his ability to hit you know, make contact against some really tough Yankees pitchers. And all of those profile things that you said actually remind me of the man whose shoes he is kind of standing in, uh, a a healthy and effective Devin Travis. Yeah, unfortunately, this season so far, it's just the first part of that. Yeah. Do we really even know what happened to Devin Travis? Well, I think that there's probably some element of just the fact that he hasn't played much like Guriel as well but uh, it's it's hard to maintain your talent if you just keep getting injured right you lose any semblance of a routine and he couldn't really do anything because it was his knee so it's not like he could be taking swings mm-hmm. yeah you can't twist and pivot on a knee that's all inflamed yeah so I, it's very interesting to see what's going to happen with Travis because you know, we've all seen how good he can be. You know, he was a, a fantastic hitter for quite a long time. But last year he wasn't, aside from May. So 
I don't know. I mean, it's, it's possible that he might just be at a point where he's needs to go down to the minors to get some of his timing back. And that could be something that leads to more playing time for Gurriel, even once Donaldson returns. Yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see what they want to do uh, because we do have an imminent you know Tulowitzki and Donaldson return, and if Guriel continues to be effective and and versatile, uh, you don't want you know you can't do anything with Solarte. Maybe Travis is the odd man out to go back. Yeah, and I'm sure they don't want to do that, but at some point he's got to start force you know forcing their hand to keep him as opposed to the other way around. Uh, the other guy whose hand is uh, doing the forcing is uh, Teoscar Hernandez. He doesn't look like he wants to leave the big league club. He's pretty much picked <laughs> up a starting job in no time flat. Randall Grichuk looks like yesterday's news. Sorry, Randall. Uh, yeah, what the heck? I mean, this is the really interesting one now. So Grichuk came over with basically the promise that he's going to be the everyday right fielder. And, you know, he's just shown no ability whatsoever to hit. You know, obviously, there, you know, there are things about his his numbers that he should be hitting better than he is his contact like when he makes contact he should have more hits than he does but he just doesn't make enough contact he struck out 34.8 percent of the time teoscar hernandez on the other hand has come up he wasn't even supposed to be up but he just came up because donaldson was hurt and they wanted another bat and he's hitting 310 with a 370 on base and a 643 slugging it's not like you know, if he if he'd had a couple good days and it was someone was day to day and they put him back down, you wouldn't probably notice. But he's been doing this for like a week and a half now, and obviously John Gibbons keeps putting his name in the lineup because why wouldn't you? Yeah, and not just putting him in the lineup, he's hitting him a second. And you know, he's he's shown no reason to be taken out of that spot. He just keeps hitting and hitting and hitting, and you know, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens there. Also when Donaldson comes back because even as it is right now they're sort of dealing with this weird five-man platoon because they have Kendrys Morales back at DH so they're shuffling players in and out Grichik will start one day and Teoscar Hernandez will DH it's I don't know it's got to be really tough for them to manage especially with Grichik not being able to be sent to the minors yeah that's kind of the, the linchpin for everything um you know and and, and the the ultimately inflexible Kendris Morales slot on the in the roster as well, right? Because it's not like you're going to send him out to do anything other than play first base like once every two weeks. Um, so yeah, you've you've really not you're out of spots when everyone is is healthy. And and I don't, you know, I tend to say with pitchers, oh, that'll sort itself out before anybody comes back because things go slow with pitchers and they get hurt all the time. But it's not mm-hmm. quite the same with position players. No. That's exactly the case. And, you know, we're, we're talking about this stuff, right? And Grichuk, the problem is they gave up a decent amount to get him, right? They traded Connor Green, who's not a nothing prospect. He's been, you know, he's got the stuff to, at minimum, be a decent reliever. And Dominic Leone, who was a very good reliever last year. So they're not just going to cut him, which some people seem to want. Because if they do, if they if they designate Grichuk for assignment, someone will claim him. Because the talent is clearly there he has been good in the big leagues so they're you know they're really in a tough spot yeah if only this were your fantasy team yeah (laughs) (laughs) all right so one last note before we move on um we have troy tulowitzki beginning my fit one of my favorite terms baseball activities very shortly (laughs) Uh, i think we've talked about that one on the podcast before (laughs) it's a great one like, what does that mean exactly? Yeah, I mean, is is jogging around the infield a baseball activity? No, it's like a football. It's a, a football yeah. move, right? <laughs> is it a legal catch? I don't even know. We've kind of <laughs> lost the plot here. Uh, but it does mean Troy Tulowitzki will be suiting up and anticipating playing real games and facing live pitching at some point in the next couple of weeks, uh, which is to say that he's healing, which I guess is long and the short of it right yeah and there's been a lot of people saying oh yeah Troy Tulewski ha ha he's never going to play another game for this team you actually <laughs> made a similar comment yep. last week yeah um no I, I am not a medical professional <laughs> no <laughs> you're not neither am I but uh you know he's on his way back I mean he's still on the 60 day DL so he can't come back until the late may i believe or mid-may at the earliest but i mean 
even as it is, he's got baseball activities. So it's probably still another week or two before he can get into extended spring training games. But this is good news, right? If he starts doing that stuff, it means that he's able to move around on his feet, which was the problem. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I mean, if, if the end of the story is that, uh, you know, you have to make a decision between keeping, well, Aledmus Diaz or someone else on the roster... Yeah, we got lots of time for that to sort itself out, I would say, still. Um, because some of these guys are playing way over their heads. And we'll get to figure out who stops playing over their head first, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and so we've talked about Aledemus Diaz a bit on this on this podcast. And he's hot and cold. When he's going, he's really solid because he's got decent pop for a shortstop. And he's playing the position way better than he has in the past. But his overall numbers are still pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah, you, you, I, I think the only reason we're not missing him, you know, versus Tulowitzki is because the Toronto fans have never seen vintage Troy, Troy Tulowitzki, so there's nothing to miss. Yeah. All but right. anyway, it's, it's good news is the point. Yeah, yeah. And so we, we, we take a step forward instead of a step back or sideways with Tulo. We are going to move away from the uh, the Blue Jays specific stuff, and we're going to talk about we, we've we've had a lot of conversations between you and I about uh, all these swings and misses and all these strikeouts and then all of these home runs. Uh, Eno Saris tried to look at that in a more quantitative way, and uh, we're going to talk to him about some some numbers he pulled and some talks he had with some players. It's really interesting stuff. We'll be right back after this. And we are, as always, pleased to be joined by Eno Saris of Newly Minted of The Athletic. How are you doing tonight, Eno? Oh, I am good. I played well in my pickup basketball game today. The important things, really, in life. Yeah, it really is. I feel much better when I do that. <laughs> a good sandwich, a pickup basketball game, and maybe some baseball thrown in there once in a while. Oh, no. Baseball's on right now. I'm watching some some good hot Detroit Pittsburgh action. Well, there you go. Oh, that's always, that's a barn burner right there. Playing? It seems like they're always playing. <laughs> the, or Detroit, not playing because all the games keep getting rained out. Yeah, I guess that's what it is. All right, so um, you wrote an article for The Athletic, which, of course, is available to people for a very reasonable fee, or if they get hired by The Athletic, which is the other way you get uh, <laughs> access to the content, which is, you know, sort of 50-50. <laughs> um, and you were looking at... The relationship between strikeouts, which there are a lot of, and launch angle, which some people have been talking about a lot. Um, so what was your, you know, your thought when you, you were looking at the relationship between those two as, as far as a topic? Well, as happens sometimes, I got a chart that made me feel like I had figured out baseball. And then... <laughs> I dug into it a little bit more and was like, oh, it's way more complicated, of course. <laughs> and the, the chart was that it, it showed the guys who had changed their launch angles and sort of bucketed everybody that changed their launch angles by the, the amount that they changed their launch angles and then looked in the, at the change in their strikeout rates. So basically, a guy like Yonder Alonso, who added like 10 degrees of launch angle, uh, you saw that his strikeout rate went up like 10, to 10 percentage points. So you got a graph that showed the guys who added a lot of angle added a lot of strikeout rate, and the guys who subtracted angle subtracted strikeout rate. Uh, that seems like a pretty direct relationship. Uh, but as you dug deeper, it, I understand. It, it's like you said, it's, it's far more complicated than that. Um, you did well, the thing. Well, it's just that the, the the relationships are just not as strong when you look in the aggregate. So, and and you know, it, like the sample breaks down a little bit because how many guys are that have really changed their launch angle ten degrees? You know, you can kind of put it on one hand. Right. Yes, yeah, so you end up with just one outlier skewing all the data. Yeah, there's a certain amount of that. There was probably like you know, 20 or 30 players on the edges that made the chart have the shape that it had. Right. 
so I, I found it interesting because you get to do the thing that, uh, you know, the typical fan doesn't get to do. Once you've, you've got an idea, you get to actually talk to players about it, um, some of those who are, are more statistically minded, some of those less so, and sort of get a read on whether what you think they're trying to do is necessarily what's happening. So one of the quotes you got from, uh, from Jed Lowry was about controlling that launch angle and, and talking about swinging hard. And he, he said, um, as soon as I start to swing too hard, it goes on the other side of the bell curve and there's a point of diminishing returns. Like he just, he's just flailing at the baseball more or less. And I thought that was interesting because in, in my mind, I don't know how do you, how does he test that other than live pitching? And, and isn't that a dangerous thing to play around with in the middle of a season? Yeah. And you know, we were talking a little bit in the context of, how he practiced and what he did over the off season. So um, I think that that may be a conversation that he's continuing a little bit about how he practices and uh, how that translates into the game. But, you know, it's hard to practice at a hundred percent either. So you get into the game uh, in some ways, I think it's about mindset. You know, I think the, the Matt Chapman quote kind of pulled it together for me where he's like, if I'm up there trying to hit a five-run homer every time, you know, I'm going to strike out a lot because I kind of have an all-or-nothing approach. And I think it's about your mindset and your approach when you when you get out there. Now, was that the kind of answer you expected, or did some of the things that these players said surprise you on that front? Um, well, let me look at some of the things they said. I mean... Uh, I, you know, the, the very last thing that Jed Lowry said surprised me. Um, and it, it, it surprised me. It didn't just because he like Sam Fold before him is kind of like my future front office guy that I just go to and ask him questions. Um, but it surprised me when Ben Intendi admitted that, uh, he was perhaps making too much contact and that that was leading to ground balls. And then he wasn't really, 100% in his swing right now. I don't hear that a lot from players, especially a player like Ben Intendi who's still doing pretty well, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you'll hear that from a guy who's hitting 150. And then he, you know, I've heard that from Brandon Moss when he was, you know, hitting 150 and couldn't figure anything out. So, right. but, you know, right right now, Ben Intendi's hitting like 270 and is like 10 or 12% above league average. I was so surprised to hear him so down on himself. <laughs> but, well, especially uh, in a way that goes you know. against all the teaching you get as a kid, right? It's like all the contact is all that matters. Just put the ball in play. And he's saying the opposite. Well, you know, the, the, the Red Sox are really interesting right now because one thing that they're doing right now is swinging a lot more strikes and being more aggressive early in the count. And that's working really well for Mookie Betts, who has a real great sense of where the strike zone is and can take advantage of hitting more fastballs early in the count. And so that has led to a little bit more power for him this year, I think. And, um, you know, when it comes to Benintendi, though, I mean, I, I think Benintendi has a pretty good sense of the strike zone, but maybe he's just hitting too many low, you know, they, they admitted there are bad strikes, you know. And so I think Ben Intendi in some ways is maybe swinging a bad strike. So the key, you know, is to have a measured approach that's not all or nothing. And then also, you know, have that extend to strikes and balls. You know, you can't just swing really hard at every strike because then you'll go whiff over. There are bad strikes. There are strikes low in the zone that you'll just whiff on anyway. So um, that's why it got complicated. This is not just a question of mechanics. It's a question of mechanics and approach. Well, that leads into a familiar name for Blue Jays fans, and Lord knows we're a Blue Jays podcast, so I would be remiss if I didn't bring up Kevin Pillar's quote, which was, uh, I went on and did some homework on myself and realized that I was in the top 20 or whatever last year for hard hit balls, but I was also fourth in the league in soft contact. Uh, Pilar told you uh, that led me to think a lot of that had to do with swinging at pitches outside of the strike zone. Um, I'm I'm not going to go off on a tangent about Pilar here, but I, I I think I think it's interesting because sometimes maybe a player who would not have had thoughts about about how to use data like that now it's right in front of him all the time. Do you think there are more guys who are willing to at least look at it and dip their toe in and think, well? here's something I, maybe I should be looking at or my coach tells me I should be looking at? 
Yeah. Yeah, and they they have access to numbers that I do not have access to. So I, I've seen players talk to each other about numbers that like batted ball spin that I do that I can't see that that uh, Statcast is not releasing to us. So they really uh, can be can steep themselves with as much data as they want. And of course, there's the whole adage like don't worry, thinking too much and stuff. But when you're in the batting cage, it's like pitchers in the bullpen they're all showing each other their grips and talking about pitching and all that stuff you know hitters in the cage are all talking about different approaches and different things it doesn't mean that when they get out on the field they want to be thinking about all sorts of percentages and tendencies and mechanical adjustments and this and that they kind of want to get out there and same for the pitchers they kind of want to get out there and grip it and rip it a little bit but you still want to practice correctly and i think you can do that you know people told me about uh, setting the machine to throw low low balls uh, so you can, you know, get a good sense of, uh, you know, Eric Thames told me that he set the machine to, to throw balls uh, in in off the plate on his hands um, so that he got he could see that. So there are ways to practice and discuss, like, use stats to practice better. And I think that's a little bit what Pidlar sort of figured out. And, and if you see his uh, strike zone swing percentage, it's, it's the best of his career in the last two years. So he hasn't really gotten a lot better at reaching outside the zone, but he has gotten better at stringing at strike. Hmm. That's interesting. And, of course, when you take this to the big reason that a lot of these guys want to potentially pay attention to this data and get better is because, as Jed Lowry talked about, it's how they get paid. And <laughs> I assume this is the quote you were referring to earlier about getting paid for home runs and strikeouts. Yeah, yeah, that's the Jed Lowry quote. Yeah, and he might not be a hundred percent correct because he's talking. In some ways, he talks about um, arbitration, and I'm not sure that arbitration is rewarding home runs more now than they used to. But maybe it's sort of relatively more because now we can we can say Russell Martin is a great framer. Arbitration is not going to consider that. They're going to look mm-hmm. at how often he played and how many homers he hit, basically what his OPS was. You know, so in some ways, arbitration is valuing homers more than the marketplace because. When Russell Martin becomes a free agent, then teams like the Blue Jays will pay him a higher salary because they know how good of a framer he is. And that, that actually leads nicely to the, the follow-up question I had. So he specifically is talking about arbitration a lot there. But once they get into free agency, the whole demand changes. So, And even just from the offensive side, you see the, all these one-dimensional sluggers not really getting paid. And I'm wondering if potentially this could be taking it to a direction that would hurt them in the future. Uh, yeah, I do think so. I think a lot about like Chris Davis with a K. Uh, he just got awarded $10 million by arbitration. And it's unclear that his full value on the open market should be much more than $10 million. And in arbitration, he should be getting sort of 60 to 80% of his full value. Um, so it, it's possible that the biggest contract he ever signs on a year-to-year basis is his arbitration contract this year. Mm-hmm. So I was. Um, I think that's interesting. Yes, I was thinking about it in in the opposite terms when he was talking about that um, that hitters don't actually get penalized in arbitration for striking out a lot. Um, mm-hmm. So you know they, they kind of ignore that column as well. Like you said, they you know they ignore framing and, and other things. It's not, I'm guessing like oh he struck out too much isn't something that's going to hurt you in arbitration. So you're kind of thinking, well, if I strike out more, if I can get other results out of it, maybe that's not such a big yeah. deal. And honestly, was anybody going to sign Yonder Alonso? I got into a long sort of Twitter argument with somebody, which, you know, don't do it. It's about career health. But, <laughs> you, you know, I, I like to respond to people, and I like, I like discussing things, and I'm, I'm often wrong, so I was willing to discuss it with him. He felt that Yonder's defense was really bad and that he was just uh, hitting for power because he got out of Petco. But I don't think that's true. We've all seen his, his fly ball rate increase. You know, Yonder's a different player now. And there's no way anybody would even have given him the two-year, the sort of muted two-year deal that he got if he had been the old Yonder Alonso. Imagine Yonder Alonso hitting 280 with six home runs hit the open market right now. You know? Yeah. Nobody yeah. wants that. Yeah. So the open market, the open market still does want homers. 
I think the strikeout thing is maybe we're on the cusp of it changing. It's possible because you look at how the Astros, the Astros, when they won it all, the, they, they improved their strikeout rate year to year more than anybody has in the history of baseball. And, keep... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, when the Cubs, when they did it, uh, when they won it all, they were in the sort of top 15 or 20 in terms of improving strikeout rate. So, uh, you know, it does make sense for uh, a, a player to maybe sell out for power in this marketplace because he will get more money for it. But there may be a change coming. I, I was going to say, you, you keep leading very nicely into the questions that we we're about to ask. <laughs> Essentially, I was going to ask about, given the success of those teams in limiting strikeouts, do you see teams trying to train the hitters to you know, make more contact? And then what would be the counter from the pitcher side as opposed to pitching up in the zone like you're seeing we might be seeing more of now? There's a little bit of traveling up and down in the zone um, with the pitchers. So if, you know, there was a little bit of evidence, and I don't want to, you know, give up my whole piece here, but <laughs> there was a little bit of evidence that um, there are players that have a sort of a steep attack angle, and that's how they're getting home runs. By the way, uh, the Blue Jays are not like that. So Josh Donaldson, people talk about launch angles, and they and they sort of bring up Josh Donaldson. Josh Donaldson does launch the ball, but he does not do it by hitting low pitches and having an uppercut swing. Josh Donaldson is a high ball hitter. Josh Donaldson did a lot of his swing after Jose Batista. And Jose Batista, I mean, you guys know this, he's a high ball hitter. He mm-hmm. loves that high ball. So uh, that was the key to different ways to getting your launch angle. So there's some evidence that the sort of steep attack angle leads to more strikeouts. But guys like Carlos Correa, uh, Jose Altuve, uh, Josh Donaldson, there's a lot of guys who have gotten, like, who've hit more fly balls by picking better pitches. And that's going to be really hard to uh, to do anything about. The steep attack angle guys, you can throw them high fastballs and they'll miss it. And it you know, there's a whole interview I have on Fangraphs. If, if there's people who aren't um, athletic subscribers, you can go back to my interview with uh, Brandon Moss from two years ago where he says literally, I have an uppercut swing and I can't hit the high and away fastball. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's uh, because there's so many different ways to be good in baseball, that's part of what I think is amazing about baseball that makes finding league-wide trends very difficult. um, And it makes it difficult for me to say to you that um, there's an exact way to deal with this. I mean – if you if like the way to get Donaldson out, and this is sort of a question to you guys, but I think this is probably true, is to be able to and and Bautista is to be able to locate something low and away. Yep, we've and we've seen right. teams try to do that very heavily against the Blue Jays actually over the last couple of years. Yeah, and you know Donaldson, the only like one of the times that Donaldson has stopped the interview and been like, I can't tell you that was <laughs> when. Uh, I tried to get him to talk about like a two strike approach and what happens when what happens what he does when a pitcher is showing that he can kind of um, hit that area repeatedly. Um, he didn't want it, so there's something mechanically that he can do to kind of maybe spray it the other way to convince the pitcher that he has to, you know, come up in the zone or something. Or there's nothing he can do, and he doesn't want you to know about that. One of those two things. <laughs> one of the two. One of the two. But, you know, he's been amazing when he's healthy. So I think it's a little bit more a question of health. So um, I, uh, we, we wanted to talk sort of overall about, about the changes that are obviously going on in the game with less and less balls being put in play because of all these, these sorts of changes. There's more home runs, there's more strikeouts, mm-hmm. there's walks are ticking up. And uh, Josh here actually found the quote for me, but I will read it from, from Bull Durham. Strikeouts are boring. Besides that, they're fascist. Mm-hmm. Throw some ground balls. It's more democratic. Um, is a democratic game, uh, or sorry, is a less democratic game still fun to watch? And do you think that Rob Manfred is, is going to, maybe panic and and press a button here to make that change i'm like worried because there's always so many unintended consequences with these things i mean Mm -hmm. they want to speed up the game they're going to put pitch clocks in there's a little bit of evidence that uh pitch clocks will lead to more pitching injuries 
Well, we've had Dr. Um, Mike's son on a bunch. <laughs> exactly. So, so I, I'd rather he didn't press that many buttons. Um, you know, I'd rather not find out what would happen. But at the same time, like I talked to, um, who was it? Uh, Jeff Samarja. And he said, people come to the game to watch us throw the ball away and fall down. Mm-hmm. And what he meant, what he meant was, and this is kind of true when you're at a game, um, you want, you want the ball in play. You, like you feel the whole crowd, the, like the minute the ball's in play, the whole crowd sits up and takes notice and there's noise and there's cheering or there's uh-ohs. And, you know, like, it's like the ball in play now is this precious thing. And honestly, I would rather muck with the game to get more balls in play than to shorten it that much. I, I, I think that uh, balls in play are compelling. Uh, I'm just not sure. You know, I, I think you could look at changing the strike zone, but which way do you do it? Make it bigger or smaller? There's, there's a lot of arguments for either way, and I'm not sure that we know exactly what will happen if we make the strike zone bigger or smaller. I, I agree totally about the law of unintended consequences there. Um, so, yeah. I, what, if, what, what if we make it smaller and there's just a ton of walks? That's not exciting. <laughs> we thought strikeouts were dull. As it turns out, that wasn't the problem at all. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. A walk is less exciting than a strikeout. At least with a strikeout, there might be a big whiff, you know? Like, sometimes a big whiff is exciting, especially if it's your, your team's pitching, right? Absolutely. Yep. All right. Well, that, that covers all kinds of different ideas about what's going on and, and what guys are thinking about it. And we appreciate you stopping by. So, again, I encourage people. Uh, there's an entire army of writers that have been recruited to write for The Athletic. Uh, it is a, a reasonable monthly fee um, for your subscription, and you can check all of those great people out and find Eno stuff over there. So thank you once again for joining us, and uh, you have yourself a good night, sir. Ah, thanks for having me. Always a good time talking to Eno because uh, he gets to do the thing I wish I could do. Go to the clubhouse and talk to the players about all kinds of weird, nerdy stuff. <laughs> Some players are on board with it, too, which is which is also cool. He's found the guys who, you know, do like to talk to him. Yeah, he's uh, and, and he's probably the unique one when it comes to these kind of things, right? Mm hmm. It's like there's no one else asking these questions which i can't believe it just blows me away that he's the only guy at the intersection of stats and and technique because it seems like it would be really interesting you know for more people to to look into that but hey what do i know <laughs> i'm just <laughs> i'm just a guy yeah uh, guy... anyway so I'm, I'm gonna link that piece that he was referring to in that interview so you can all go read it if you're athletic subscribers and if not well <laughs> too bad <laughs> yeah we we're not handing out our password sorry uh okay so questions time now to hear from our listeners that just seems silly here are the rules first i ask a question then you ask a question now how does that sound sweetheart could you repeat the question please question one comes from joel wendell at wendell joel uh is actually from couple days ago he said uh during breaks in the action what popular clips from mlb.com would you prefer to enjoy <laughs> this is making fun a bit of mlb.com where they play like three clips over and over and over again i, mean, I don't know this is a fun one to think about i want to go with the one where albert bell threw a forearm shiver at fernando Vina to break out a double play and wasn't called for an automatic double play for it um I would like to see what what are the three moments? Is there anything from an All Star game? I haven't watched MLB TV this year, so I don't know. <laughs> okay, if if it's not on there, I would like to see uh, John Crock uh, against Randy Johnson with the bat backwards and uh, his helmet on the wrong way and going from the wrong side of the plate because he's scared to death of Randy Johnson in the All Star game after he gets his tower buzzed. That'd I thought it was Larry Walker who went to the other side. Or was it Walker who went to the other side? Yeah, John Crock just stood there looking terrified. 
I thought After he grabbed the, one, one over his head. The, the bat with the... Anyway. Regardless, I would like to see any clips of people terrified of Randy Johnson. Um, you can show the bird one, too. Even though that was a spring training <laughs> game. All right. <laughs> that clip is definitely out there. And then Barry Bonds breaking the home run record because that was awesome. All right. Cool. What do we got next? All right. So the next question comes in from Minor Leaguer. Why are you doing this instead of watching sports? <laughs> I mean, that's a deep philosophical question, but I guess for me, the answer is I don't actually like any other sports except for baseball. I really, I just, there's numbers of things that I don't enjoy about them. So this is easy. All right. And for me, the answer is I am watching sports. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of <laughs> figured that might be a little bit of an answer for one of us. I can't imagine why we couldn't get Nick Dyka tonight. Uh... <laughs> well, he's also touring Europe, but you know. <laughs> Uh, Brian asks a couple of questions. Um, so the first one is, how does it feel knowing that the Blue Jays now have the number one minor league prospect? Now that is because Vlad Guerrero Jr. I believe was number two, and the the prospect list changed not because he got better, but because someone got called up to the major leagues for the Braves. Yes, some ones, actually, because one of the lists had Gleyber Torres ahead of him as well. But yeah, so Ronald Cunha got called up by the Braves and Gleyber Torres, as mentioned, by the Yankees. So on every single list that anybody might care about, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is number one. Weird. That's how it feels. It is weird, but it's really quite cool. He remains the youngest player in, I believe, all of double-A no, he yep. plays, sorry, youngest player in all the Eastern League. I don't know if... No, I, it's all of double-A, double actually. A. Remarkable. Oh, yeah, and he's hitting with, like, an OPS of, like, 900. Yeah, and he's still walking more than he's striking out. He's had one game where he didn't reach base. The Blue Jays have never had a prospect like this. And, I mean, never. I mean, Carlos Delgado was the closest I think because you know, he was supposed to be great he was you know a top four five prospect I think the highest they've ever had ranked was John Olrud at number three before Vlad but you know no one saw John Olrud as being what people think Vlad Guerrero Jr. can be yeah so fingers crossed <laughs> yeah N nothing bad happens at this point um so Brian also asks uh, if Tulo comes back and is actually healthy, is the team still better with him? Would anyone take him in a trade if we keep, say, half the salary? Yes, and then no. Uh, I assume the team's still better with him. Was the and yes. I think yeah. considerably better. You know, here's the thing with Troy Tulowitzki. So he was not very good during his brief healthy time in 2017, and but nobody on the team was really good. He's not old. Right, he's thirty-three years old, I think, and he won't turn thirty-four till the end of the season. In twenty sixteen, he had a seven sixty-one OPS with above-average defense at short. That's still a really good baseball player. It's just not Troy Tulowitzki. Yeah, yeah. I I think we, I, I I agree with you that he, if he was anywhere near where he was in twenty sixteen, if he you know is anywhere near healthy, if he can stay on the field, all those ifs which is sort of you know, what the question is, then yes, you want Troy Tulowitzki in your lineup and on your team. But it's really difficult to see that through the cloud of Troy Tulowitzki, um, injured guy who, you know, is, is mo spends most of his time in a Toronto uniform, looks like he's trying to get his timing back. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, but the, it actually does look like that, even if it's not actually what's happening. But uh, even so, like even his not-so-good year last year, was still better than Aledemus Diaz. Word, as they say. Right, so he's an upgrade at shortstop, <laughs> which is, that's what he that's what he needs to be. Yeah, exactly. Ooh, fire me up a question. This is from Colleen Evans at Colleen Evans 6. Why is baseball the only sport that allows irregular fields? For example, the short porch in New York. Why not design an advantage at the Dome? Advantage was in quotes. So... That's just how the baseball rule book is written, strangely enough. There are actually minimums for all of those fence distances in most leagues. Um, so, no, you can't put a 100-foot fence in if you have some guy who lofts fly balls all day long. Um, but I, I, that's part of the tradition and the quirks of the game. I don't think there's anything, anything that says 
you can't put a symmetrical field in, obviously, because the Blue Jays have one. But, I mean, traditionally, ball fields were so big and they were built on city blocks. And most of those weird field dimensions are, there's a street right behind that wall, which is why, that's why Fenway is the way it is, right? Yeah, and technically, the Yankee New Yankee Stadium breaks the rules. There are minimums for the right field fence that it does not reach. But because it was an homage to the previous stadium with the exact same dimensions, it was allowed to keep them. That's why we call it a joke stadium. Yes, and, and, and unlike the previous stadium, it didn't have, which didn't have wind tunnels blowing things out to right field, it's a complete joke. But, uh, you know, it, it's kind of the fun of the game. You know, teams can alter their fields, essentially, to make things more interesting, you know, and make their team better. And it, it creates competitive advantage things. As for why the Jays don't do it, I don't know. I mean, you know, there's, there's some value still to understanding and having a normal ballpark too so i think the main reason the jays have not done it up until this point is because this was a multi-purpose multi-use field from its inception so whoever built it wasn't really building a baseball field they were building a sports facility so the idea that that things would be symmetrical I think was sort of ingrained in in the design process right so sure then you get to a point where well that's just the way the stadium looks and you don't want to mess with anything that you might need to move where you to i don't know play football on it and move the field around right because i assume some of the mechanical parts if you mess with certain fences now you have a problem um now that it's strictly a baseball facility and a concert facility and they're probably going to have to renovate it which we'll talk about in a few minutes um, would I be, I wouldn't be all that shocked to see something change a little bit about the dimensions of the park. I wouldn't also be shocked to see it stay the same. Yeah. I mean, I'm with you. If, if, the only thing I think actually that might change is the foul territory might a little bit as they you know, rejigger some of those corner seats. But I, I think that, you know, the normal dimensions just, there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, you know, like Oriole Park at Camden Yards, aside from the tall wall in right field is normal dimensions. And there's a bunch of parks like that. Yeah. Our final question from Gideon Turk. What's up with Stro? <laughs> um, well, the biggest issue I think so far this season has been his walks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, you know, we, we talked about how Strowman is at the mercy of you know, uh, the baseball gods, essentially, because he's an extreme ground ball pitcher. He's even higher than normal, 69%, I think is what I, I saw earlier today for his ground ball rate. You know, some of those are going to find holes. That's just the way it goes. And when you put runners on base, you increase the size of those holes. I agree with you. I just, I guess the question is, he's never been walk prone before. And now something's missing. Not so good. Yeah. And his strikeouts are up too. He's at 9.5 strikeouts per nine innings, which is obviously well above his career average, which is around seven and a half. So I'm not actually sure exactly what is going on there. It's, it's kind of hard to pinpoint something like that. His, you know, his pitch mix is pretty much the same. A few more sliders, but you know, other than that, it's not that different from anything he's been doing that he was doing last year when he had a top five ERA in the league. So, so if we wait and see. And then maybe something something shakes out as to what he's doing differently or why he's getting different results. But, yeah, it is kind of weird. Yeah, it is. And uh, it, I don't know. Maybe it's something to do with his abridged spring training because he was hurt. I, I don't know. Like It's one of those things that when it's this small a sample size, which is just four starts so far for Stroman, it's hard to say what's real and what's not. You know, yeah. we talked about this with Hap and how it's like he has hot stretches and cold stretches. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we look back through – Marcus Stroman's career and we found some quick stretches where he wasn't that good right yeah oh for sure yeah he's not he's not you know clockwork like a Roy Halladay or a Clayton Kershaw he's he is up and down it's just this is a weird direction to go with with a lot a loss of control but what can yep. you do okay the, the questions have concluded uh we will move on to the unwritten rules Cleverly written down on Twitter by Greg Olson, former closer for, I don't know, the Orioles, I think is where I remember him, but maybe I'm thinking of a couple other teams. 
Yeah, that's where he was most known for. Yep. So, uh, unwritten rule. We're going to just hit one because we've got a lot of things we've talked about already this week. But he wrote down like 15 of them or more. 23. 23. Unwritten rule number nine was the one I wanted to pick up, which he stated as... But do- first, we have to comment the fact that he's writing down unwritten <laughs> rules, which means they're no longer unwritten. Yeah, so these are the written rules. <laughs> okay, um, unwritten rules may be a brand name now. Uh, number nine was, do not stand in the home plate circle, the dirt area surrounding home plate, when a pitcher is warming up. Do not even get within 10 feet of said circle. You may get hit during warm-ups if you're on the dirt. It's a free shot. Um, I understand it's a, you know, no person in their right mind would stand there anyway, but I, I assume that's so that someone who might want to be getting a sneak peek at the pitcher can't do that from the right angle. Yeah, that, that's what it is. And I've seen pitchers throw at guys, like throw an essentially very wild pitch when someone's standing way too close to the, to the, to the catcher and to the, to the umpire, well, the umpire's not there, but to the circle it's just not supposed to be done i don't i mean i get why it's like you're warming up this isn't supposed to be scouting time it's just you're supposed to be you're getting loose and it's distracting Um, i once saw now the really one is that you don't cross in he didn't write this one you don't cross in front of the catcher ever while the pitcher's warming up well yeah that seems like a free one yeah (laughs) Uh, the it's a free shot. Do batters, you know, know it's a free shot, or do you? Does some one guy find it on the team the hard way, and then then it kind of gets around that that's that's what's going to happen? I wonder. Or at what age does that happen? Young. <laughs> <laughs> I think if you're playing on any kind of high level team, you'll know. Like if the second you see a ball come whizzing back there, you'll you learn that one pretty quick. Indeed, indeed. So yeah, one unwritten rule, which uh, kind of makes sense. Unlike some of the other unwritten rules, which seem a bit over the top, which we might uh, we might visit in the weeks to come when we have a minute or two here and there. Which leaves us with a note that Rob Manfred stopped in Toronto. What was his, the reason for his visit, ostensibly? I'm not sure. He, he, uh, he bounces around to every team, so I don't know exactly where he was here. So they asked him about the Rogers Center, and he essentially said it's kind of not nice and needs an upgrade. Which, I mean, yeah, we all know that. I don't that's not what I I had a problem with it's when he he basically said you know there's not enough premium seating around here we need more premium tickets really that's that's where you're gonna go yeah (laughs) he uh and he talked about something about millennial spaces I don't know what the hell that was about oh (laughs) man what's the flight deck yeah um so here's the thing he's parroting Mark Shapiro that's exactly what Mark Shapiro has said about the Domes. They don't have enough premium seating, so they don't have as much revenue from tickets as most teams do. It sounds like he's there just trying to push Rodgers for the betterment of... Because if the Jays make more money, baseball makes more money, right? Well, yeah, obviously. But that's like what it you, sounds like. You come into town and you go, ah, these really great fans in this city. They need to be laying down some more dollars to get close to the action. That's horrible. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> just it's disgusting. almost as though he, he he's either playing for rogers or trying to play for like the media so to push local governments which if he's trying to do that <laughs> it's not happening no i don't think toronto has the appetite for that that i can see so yeah the whole especially thing... when this when the stadium was bought for 25 million dollars yeah what a what a sour trip so yeah rob manfred not only does he hate baseball he hates you going to the game for a recent but a decent buck for some reason <laughs> All right. Uh, at this point, I turn to you, my friend, and I ask you if you have a final thought. Yeah, it'll be nice when the when it's gone, when the the, when the series is over, because Chris Sale's starting tomorrow. It's a, it's it's a rough stretch, right? Even if the Blue Jays come back and win this game, it's tough to play these teams back to back after having no rest. So, and they can get back to you know playing them like themselves again, which would be you know be nice to see, even with that weirdo doubleheader in the middle there in Cleveland. Yeah. Um, so random fact that was making rounds on Twitter is that this is poised to be the first month in baseball history with more strikeouts than runs scored. Not saying that's a problem, but I'm saying that this trend that we've been observing is very, very much a real thing. And it's going to get weirder, I think, before it gets 
uh, you know, before things start to compensate and something something else changes around. That yep. said, uh, this would mean that we are coming to the end of a podcast. And at the end of a podcast, I would say that you have been Josh Housem at Joshua Housem. And I have been Greg Wisniewski at Coolhead 2010. And our guest was Eno Saris, uh, who you can find on Twitter at Eno Saris or his writing at The Athletic. Uh, this has been Artificial Turf Wars, episode 98, and we will talk at you next week.